Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. We had the pleasure of meeting with Lee Grant Irons and his daughter Morgan Irons during Season 5 of the Space 3D Podcast. We've invited Lee Grant back this season to continue our discussion. This is Part 3 and the conclusion of our latest interview. Lee Grant Irons is a scientist and engineer with experience in the fields and industries of space plasma and computational physics, nuclear power design and operations, radioactive and hazardous waste management, environmental remediation, and large-scale engineering and construction projects. In this episode, co-hosts Tom Hill and Eleanor Rangers continue learning about the key elements of pan-cosmorio theory put forth in Lee's article recently published in Frontiers in Astronomy and Space Sciences entitled, Pan-Cosmorio World Limit Theory, of the sustainability of human migration and settlement in space. Briefly, pan-cosmorio theory draws on ecological thermodynamics theory and the methodology of abductive reasoning to consider the consequences of humans leaving Earth's life-sustaining regenerative systems behind. The paper argues that human growth beyond Earth will be limited by the absence of these systems and the implications of leaving them behind. While the prospect of what lies ahead for humankind in establishing a permanent presence in space is daunting, Lee's paper lays the groundwork for defining the prerequisite foundation for that bootstrapped settlement to flourish. Some hope. Heard what you guys said, and you said, oh, this is kind of depressing, doesn't look like... Yeah, you you got to give us something to hang on to here, something positive. If this is true, how, you know, all we're going to, we're just going to continue to have our science fiction and that's all it's going to be. <laughs> well, there is some hope there. So there's something that's called balanced sustainability. And it says that, well, what if we didn't try to replace all of nature? So all of this basal ecosphere with technology, which by the way is called weak sustainability, but we just tried to replace some of it and just enough of it to be able to bootstrap ourselves into space until we can get to a point of sustainability, right? What if we could do that? So that's called balanced sustainability. So we looked at that, and in fact, there's another paper that Norfolk Institute has been working with a team at Penn State on that we're going to be coming out with a few months after this paper comes out, and it's looking at, okay, well, what kind of a system can we build in space and what level of sustainability would that be in, in the relatively near term? What does it look like the first kind of truly sustainable system is going to look like? So that's what that paper is going to deal with. All right. But, so, so all hope is not lost. Right, right. This, this balanced sustainability says that what if we moved the point of self-restoring order from the gravitational dissipating structure point to somewhere else in the ecosystem network. Where would that be and and how would we make that work? So it's all based upon the idea that this whole concept of self-restoring order that we're given with these gravitational dissipating structures on Earth, if instead you used something else to give you the self-restoring order, 
something else that uses conservative forces and that you can have somewhere else in the space if you can bootstrap yourself to the point of having it, what, what would that be? So the first thing that we said was, okay, well, let's first of all figure out how we would simulate gravity using technology. Well, we've all seen these things, right? So the McKendry cylinders and the O'Neill cylinders, yeah. uh, you know, these rotating uh, ecospheres, right, in, in, in space, that they rotate a rate to, to kind of simulate a 1G force, right, of gravity. And obviously that takes technology to do that, right? So this, these McKendry cylinders or those, these O'Neill cylinders that we, would, that we build, those would be technology, and we would need technology to drive them, right, to keep them spinning and to maintain them. That's all technology-driven. So we see that we can simulate gravity. Now, you know, getting the electromagnetic field around us to, to simulate the radiation protection we have from Earth's magnetosphere, that's a little bit more difficult, right? We can imagine that we could develop some technology to do that, right? So we get radiation shielding and the thermal heating that we need to keep the ground warm enough to grow things, okay? We can imagine coming up with technologies to do all these things to simulate all these gravitational dissipating structures like we, like we have on Earth. Then the question is, okay, so that's technology. You build that in space. Now how do you sustain it, right? Because we've already said... We need a basal ecosphere to sustain our augmentational systems, our technology. So how would we sustain that? Well, you would probably initially build it with a bunch of supply chain stuff from Earth to get things going and from the moon and wherever you're pulling resources from to build it. So you're going to bootstrap it using Earth and, and other resources in the space. Once you get it set up, you want to get the ecosystem part growing as quickly as possible. So this is getting soil in there, getting plants growing, getting life going, and using the simulated gravity, getting as many things going in what looks like a, a natural cycle as possible, right? So that you have water cycles and air cycles and all the biogeochemical cycles going. And then you get your plant cycles going. Now, it turns out that the cycle where you have soil and you have nutrients and bacteria in the soil and you have a seed and you grow a plant and it grows fruit and it goes through its life and then it dies and it decays and it returns to the soil and the, and the nutrients return to the soil and then they get recycled and then more plants grow, right? Uh -huh. It turns out that that is another self-restoring, what we call a semi-reversible cycle because it involves biochemistry, and it turns out the chemistry part of biochemistry involves the electrical force. So chemical reactions are fundamentally driven by the electrical force of nature. And the electrical force is a conservative force, just like gravity is. And the biochemistry of nature turns out it sets itself up in cycles of endothermic and exothermic reactions cycling together to move chemicals back and forth. And because the force involved is the electrical force, that's a conservative force, and so it turns out that those cycles end up being what we call semi-reversible. So the electrical force acts as physics terminology would be called an ideal pump. The electrical force does not generate entropy when it acts. So it turns out these cycles are self-restoring 
as long as they're being driven by exergy moving through your ecosphere. So if you can bootstrap your gravitational dissipating structures to be simulated by technology to the point where you can get your ecosystem going, being driven by the capacity coming through the ecosphere, that's the power going through the area of the ecosphere, that you have all this plant life and bacteria and insects and things growing in, then it's possible the what we call the biospheric element of the ecosphere. So let's talk about a little bit more terminology. Most everybody, I think, is familiar with the term biosphere because we all know about Biosphere 2, the big experiment that happened in Arizona, where, yeah. right? So biosphere is actually just the living part of the ecosphere, the, the biotic life forms. That's the biosphere. The ecosphere is the entire thing. The ecosphere is made up of both the living and non-living parts of the entire thing. So the ecosphere is a bigger thing. The biosphere is just part of that. If, if we can get to the point where we've bootstrapped the gravitational dissipating structures with technology and we get the biosphere growing, turns out the biosphere will continue to function as a self-restoring order as long as exergy is moving through it from power coming in and this is going to be power collection from the sun and the technology that's driving these simulated gravitational dissipating structures. Now that becomes your self-restoring part of your ecosphere. The, the biosphere does. And now it can become your anchor point for your self-restoring order. And now you're bootstrapping off of that anchor point. And so now you use that anchor point to establish your sustainable basal ecosphere you build your augmentational human civilization on top of that, and part of that augmentational network is going to be to regenerate and maintain the technology that is producing your gravitational dissipating structures way back at the front of your ecosystem. And so all you've done is you've shifted the self-restoring order point from being starting at the gravitational dissipating structures, and you're shifting it to being just at the biospheric point of your ecosystem. Now, it's somewhat brittle, I think, because your gravitational dissipating structures are no longer self-restoring. They're being restored by your augmentational system, basically by humans and technology maintaining this rotating system and the radiation protection system and the heat maintenance system of, of your ecosystem. So, but that's called balanced sustainability. If everybody didn't catch that, and you're having a difficult time following it, once the paper downloads, read it, there's diagrams in it, it might help, the visuals might help you better. <laughs> but um, that balanced sustainability approach might be possible to get a sustainable system in space. It's gonna require a lot of heavy bootstrapping and when you look at the area requirement we're talking about, that and that might cause you to gasp as well, because we say that uh, to get a full system, you basically need 65,100 square meters per human to get a sustainable human civilization in space. That turns out to be just a quarter of a hectare. So when I say a quarter of a hectare, you go, oh, well, it's just a quarter of a hectare. That's no big deal. When, you, when I say 65,100 square meters, that sounds like a big deal, right? It's basically four football fields. Well, that's still a large square area. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a large area. 
but it's based upon the the concept that the level of evolution and adaptation that we have currently evolved to here on earth this is what we're familiar with today this is what sustains us today at our current average height our current average weight our current average lifespan with our current technological capability all right we're sustained by the entire earth today because we've become global truly a global civilization but it sounds like we're resource hogs <laughs> we are because you look at how we're living on earth today and we define four levels of sustainability in the paper level 1 is the best that's like the ideal human civilization where everything's great right and you might get hit by a hurricane or you know a meteorite or something like that but you're going to recover well that's level 1 we think humans today on earth are living in a level 2 sustainability mode and and we're lucky to be even be level 2 and the reason why we're level 2 on earth is because earth ecosphere is supporting us <laughs> so and and that's just been given to us it's been handed to us we didn't do anything to get that we it, it's here and we grew into it so um so we're level 2 sustainability here on earth which which effectively means that we are over consuming the basal capacity of our ecosphere and as a result we're beginning to see blight we're beginning to see diversity loss and occasionally you'll see a cascade failure happen in an ecosystem where it's just overconsumed that it completely collapses so that's level 2 sustainability but we think in space if you bootstrap the way we just said using an o'neil cylinder i think it's the o'neil that's the bigger cylinder it's using carbon nanotubes right i think you're going to need the bigger one to get to the 65100 square meter per human capability right you you set up that o'neil cylinder and you get it bootstrapped to where you have a self restoring biosphere within the ecosphere and then the gravitational dissipating structures maintained by technology that's maintained by your augmentational system that's maintained by your basal system so you get that set up we think you can get to level 1 sustainability eventually now it's the area thing that's going to be difficult so we see that initially you're probably going to have like single rotating rings right so rather than having a rotating cylinder you're going to have a rotating ring and you can set up a basal ecosphere in there but that isn't a whole lot of area right so initially what we see happening is humans setting up a uh, level 3 sustainability type of systems in space and then slowly building yourself up to a level 2 sustainability and a level 1 sustainability which is going to take time um but if you're going to do that you need to do that close to earth because you're going to need a lot of heavy supply chain support from earth to get that bootstrapped and from the moon and it's going to be a challenge but it looks like it's possible a level 4 sustainability by the way is what we have on the international space station oh okay So level 4 sustainability says you got to be close enough to earth so that if if things go really bad you hop into a dragon capsule or a soyuz capsule and you escape back to earth. <laughs> That's level 4 sustainability. You're close enough to earth to be rescued. And yet um, we and yet we look to the space station as like the epitome of you know 
technology and, you know, futurism and it's, there it is. It's like we're barely hanging on. It's the best we can create right now. Sure. And that's understandable. That's why we defined a level of sustainability based upon it, because that's the best we've gotten. So we've got to say what that is. We'll define it. That's level four sustainability. And now it's just a matter of getting better from there. Now, getting back to, I think, the original question about, well, what about Mars? We want to live on Mars. We'll live right? on Mars. That's right. We want to live on Mars. You know, that's a tough one. In the thinking that we've done here at Norfolk Institute and, and with our fellow researchers and collaborators, we haven't figured out, based upon this theory, how we would achieve level two and level one sustainability on Mars, just simply because of the gravity problem. Because when you are in a gravity well, as opposed to in free fall, so when you are sitting on the lithosphere of a gravity well, and now, boom, you have a parent weight on you of one-third Earth gravity, right? It's hard to simulate increasing that to 1G consistently, right? Because you can't rotate yourself into that very easily because there's an up and down, right? And trying to get a consistent 1G apparent weight on yourself and your entire ecosphere in the one-third G field of Mars, that's an engineering feat that is quite challenging. I suppose you could try and get a city that's rotating on a slightly banked large platform that rotates slowly so it's a centrifuge city that doesn't rotate so fast that you have inner ear problems and vertigo and nausea and motion sickness. So you have to have a large enough diameter so that you're not feeling the movement, but enough rotation so that it makes you feel like you have one G of feeling. That seems to me that would be more difficult to do than just a rotating ring or, or cylinder in space. So that's a challenge. Now, the other option here is that you get very strong interplanetary space market going in space. And you get the space market going so strong in space that it's like the market on Earth. There's just, there's a lot of shippers. There's a lot of conveyors. Basically, everybody has their own rocket ship, right? And you can just pull into any spaceport and get your rocket ship worked on, just like you can get your car worked on on Earth, right? If you can get an, an interplanetary society going where your interplanetary supply chains are quite diverse, then you can effectively create an ecosphere out of the entire solar system or, or out of a portion of the solar system. You know, and people imagine this. They're like, well, we got to get a Dyson sphere surrounding the sun, right? And it's collecting all of the solar radiation, and that's where we get our power from, right? And, and now we can power everything from that Dyson sphere, and we figure out how to do, you know, hyperdrive and wormhole between different locations. And so, you know, you begin to get into really heavy science fiction stuff, but that's, you know, creating an ecosphere out of the solar system. You could imagine it, but I think we're still pretty far away from there. And the question is, you can't just say, we're going to get there. you got to figure out how to bootstrap your way to get there. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that continues to be the challenge. 
Well, this is fascinating because I think it's it's taking a, almost, in a way, a thousand-foot view of what's really required to really, truly have sustainable space settlement. And, I mean, to me, the takeaway message is uh, I have every bit of faith that if we set our mind to it, we can figure it out. But we're really – we really have quite a ways to go and quite a, quite a large amount of commitment to make that happen. But it's great that we have people like – Lines like yours and Morgan's that are that are trying to give some focus to this and uh, and to help to maybe set the stage for what will happen in the in the future. It is a theory, so you know everybody has a theory, right? <laughs> some people have two. Yeah, some people have two, right? But not so, everybody has a great name like Pan Cosmori. Right, you gotta get the name first. <laughs> and, and you That's have to copyright that. <laughs> Did you have a focus group on it? No, actually, we didn't focus group that one. So I know what's going to happen is the paper's going to hit the market and people are going to go, that's a stupid name, you know. So, uh, you know, that'll probably happen. But, no, it's it's a theory. We've established it using deductive reasoning, which is a methodology of the science of philosophy, of a way of theorizing things. And deductive logic says that you can infer other possibilities based upon what you know. So what we're saying is we're inferring that because of the way Earth's ecosphere evolved and because of the way it functions sustainably, because of the way humans depend upon that, we can infer that humans are going to need as much exergy to survive in space as they utilize on Earth, which means that exergy has to come from somewhere. So we infer, therefore, that Earth, that humans are going to need an Earth-like system anywhere in space they are to get enough exergy to survive. If they don't, it's going to be like trying to run your car on a cell phone battery. The car isn't going to run. So that we're inferring that. So that's abductive reasoning that gets us there. And then you have to use inductive reasoning to come up with hypotheses and experiments to test that theory, right? And so in the paper, we've provided five hypotheses, and we've, and we've identified experiments that you would do to test those five hypotheses. It turns out that the experiments are to run to build an entire ecosphere in space with these various conditions being met and see how they operate and then measure the sustainability of them. And, and in the paper, we also provide a quantitative method of measuring sustainability. So we've got all that covered in this theory. So we have five testable hypotheses in, in the theory. The best way to test them is, to, is by setting up analogs where you can test the theories without risking human life, right? But we know humans... Humans are like, I don't need no analog. I am going to Mars. You know, it's Mars or bust. And if I die there, so be it, right? You know, and great. We have the adventurer types of explorers who are willing to go off and do that. Right now, you can't hop in a boat and go to Mars. You know, you could maybe have more of an opportunity of doing that to go from Europe to America, like, you know, Columbus and whoever, and the Vikings and such. But um, you can't do that for Mars very easily. But, but the best thing to do is to try and do some analog testing so that you're not risking human life. 
So you, and you can test these hypotheses that way, or you can test it by just going and establishing your system and sticking humans there. And then, and when, see, and, and then see if they, if they can bootstrap themselves and live. Right. And, and when things go wrong, then you do a post-mortem and a root cause analysis, and you do these calculations we provide in the theory, and then you come up with evidence as, as to whether the hypothesis in our theory is, is supported or not. And so the scientific method. Good old scientific method. So we provide for the scientific method in our paper by providing five hypotheses and five ways of testing them. And so that's the inductive reasoning part. Once the theory, once and if the theory is proven to be correct, now you finally get to deductive reason. It's like, well, now that we've proven the theory to be correct, it would be a good idea for us to follow what the theory says in order to get the right results at the end. That's deductive reasoning, right? And once so, again, we de- we have very little faith that humans will follow directions. Well, <laughs> and lo and behold, we have the Artemis program, and I'm not indicting the Artemis program. So please, nobody think that I'm indicting the Artemis program. I think it's awesome. But we're sending humans to the moon. We're going to as- attempt, from what I understand, to establish a permanent human presence on the moon. So... That doesn't mean you're going to have certain humans always living on the moon and having children on the moon and their children having children on the moon. We're not there yet. Yeah. That's yeah. where you really get. That's where you're really getting into sustainability if you can sustain multiple generations, right? That's right. But but we're going to have a supply chain of humans, right? So we're going to keep replacing humans, moving humans back and forth, but we're going to try and maintain a permanent human presence the moon and we're going to set up human augmentational systems on the moon that's what it is right if they try and grow food on the moon okay that's an augmentational system too because we said human agriculture is augmentational there's no ability to do hunting gathering on the moon because there's no natural stuff to hunt and gather to eat right we know there isn't biochar on the moon there isn't biochar on the moon right not that we know of right (laughs) we we grow food there right those, these are all augmentational systems, and, and we'll be able to see, are we, are we able to maintain these systems, or do we fail at maintaining them? Are we able to grow food, or do we fail at growing the food, right? And we end up abandoning the base because it's too costly to sustain it from Earth, and the politics fail us, right? That's really the biggest risk for this whole Artemis mission is the politics of Earth, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah. So... So we're going to be able to begin to test this theory based upon the results of Artemis, um, and, and, and we'll see what happens. We looked in the literature, and we said, well, there, there's a bunch of us that have been talking around this question, but there's no one paper that deals with this question directly. But now we'll have something in the literature. We would definitely encourage everyone to take a look at this. It, it's absolutely a head, something that's head spinning. I will not deny that, but it's really fascinating, and I really have to congratulate you and Morgan for really helping to put all this together into into a coherent statement. It took a year. It was it came out of the last paper that we did that that you interviewed us on, and there was just a little nugget of an idea there that was just nagging at my brain, and so I, I went to the literature and I just started reading started finding these, these interesting little nuggets, and it just kind of all came together over a year. So we're happy with the results, and we hope people are going to you know that there's going to be a lot of critical review, and that's good for science. 
No, it'll it'll be a good conversation, and that's one thing that's good about the scientific method is, you know, we can debate, 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 but the ultimate answer comes from the experiment. Well, on that note, I think we're going to call that a wrap because we've also been keeping you, you know, definitely for for over an hour, which we really appreciate because this is fascinating stuff. So. Before we wrap, I got to tell you, a friend of mine who works at the U.S. Geological Survey is working on a paper along these lines about the agricultural sustainability of Mars and things along those lines. He stuck in review. One of his partners who was writing the paper with him died, and it's just oh, kind of a mess. But when this comes out, I think it'll be along these same lines. And then I also wanted to say that, that this is the this is the non-sexy part of space exploration that – you know, it doesn't go boom. It doesn't make, you know, big views in the sky and all that sort of thing. But it's critical for if, if we're going to do this long term, we have to think this kind of stuff through. And just getting right. started on it is the right way to go. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I agree. But I think it's sexy. But, you know. <laughs> that's that's subjective. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I'm a physicist, right? It doesn't take a lot to get us excited. <laughs> Quarks and all that are sexy. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> cool. All right. Well, listen, thank you once again. This was really great. And I uh, really appreciate your time and flexibility for yeah. us to uh, chat with you. And, and good luck with the publication. Thanks for listening. We'll be returning to more of our interview with Space Shuttle Pad Closeout lead Travis Thompson in our next podcast. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.